Hello, this is Victoria, and for the next hour, I'll be reading from the April 10th issue of the Toronto Star on the Niagara Frontier Radio Reading Service. Family of man who died in Toronto jail awaiting trial speaks out. Anthony Chazik Manalakis died before bail review hearing. Family says he was denied surgery that he needed. Melissa C. and her brother, Anthony C., were born only 10 months apart. They were like twins who never left each other's side, she recalls. Shazim Manalakis lived with Melissa for a time. They'd run errands, go on long walks, watch movies, and it would often take her toddler to daycare. He was like my best friend. We did anything you can think of together, the 29-year-old said. Shazik Manolakis loved being an uncle and dreamed of building a future of his own. He planned to get married, travel to Greece with Melissa, and start a family. But those plans were cut short two weeks after Shazik Manolakis died on March 25th on Toronto Self Detention Centre and what his family was told was a suspected drug overdose. Anthony's family first contacted CBC News about his death last week. His sister decided to speak about her brother's loss following his funeral Monday. We're shocked, Melissa said. This could have been protected. We're so angry and we feel guilty because there was nothing that we could have done to help him. Melissa and her family, who are from Brampton, Ontario, is devastated and furious that their loved one died so suddenly while at the jail and want answers around the circumstances of his death. Adding to the grief is the fact that the 30-year-olds had been in need of necessary surgery that the jail did not facilitate, according to Anthony's lawyer, Carmelo Tresello. Man needed surgery for previous injury, lawyer. Anthony was arrested on September 15th 2022, on a string of charges including motor vehicle theft, carrying a loaded gun without a license, and criminal harassment. Since then, he'd been in pretrial custody, awaiting a bail review hearing that was scheduled for April 14th in Toronto, his lawyer said in an email to CBC News. But while awaiting the hearing, wounds from a 2019 car crash were beginning to burst, Trusello said. A long incision in his torso had begun to open, and his intestinal tract was bulging out in two places, said Tricello. That information was going to to be presented at Anthony's bail review, he said. Tricello said that the jail has scheduled Anthony for surgery on November 3, 2022 at Sunnybrook Hospital, but the surgery was suddenly cancelled with no clear reason. He was told that the jail could not facilitate the procedure, Tricello said. Anthony died before his case made it to trial. As of the date of his death, no new surgery has been scheduled to his knowledge, despite ongoing requests, Chisello said. In a statement to CBC News Toronto, the Ministry of Solicitor General said paramedics were in jail on March 25th after staff found an inmate unresponsive and in medical distress in a cell. The ministry said it could not provide further details as a number of investigations are underway, said Brett Ross, a spokesperson for the ministry in an email statement. The Office of the Chief 
coroner confirmed to CBC News Toronto that it is investigating the death, as well as all deaths in custody are probed by the office. If Anthony's death was a result of anything other than natural causes, that would prompt a mandatory inquest, it said in an email statement. Inmate deaths in prison increased from 2020. A young man's death just come months after an open letter was sent to province solicitors general by academics and advocacy groups, calling for an independent oversight body for correctional institutions. Group told CBC News in January that poor conditions and health care are major concerns and that a new body is needed to provide transparency when death occurs. A report published in February by Tracking Injustice, a justice transparency project, found that deaths in custody nearly doubled from 2020 to 2021, from 23 up to 41. The deaths called for the letter called for a new body to ensure timely reporting on deaths in custody and actions to increase the safety of inmates. Trucello said that Anthony's death is connected to a larger systematic issue around the poor care of inmates, including those in pretrial custody. Issues like poor staffing and preventing the province from delivering the required duty of care, said Trucello. Those concerns are on Melissa's mind as she searches for answers on what happened to her brother, who she said she should have had immediate access to the surgery he needed. I'm hoping to see changes made with correctional facilities. People are supposed to be somewhat safe where there are, she said. Where were my brother's human rights? Toronto food banks are at a baking point, says Daily Bread CEO, calling on province to boost social supports. Food Bank wants to see a return of the provincially provided top-up to social assistance recipients. More people visited member locations of the Daily Bread Food Bank Network in March than at any time in the charity's 40-year history, its CEO said while calling on the province to do more to help people fight the high price of groceries. Prior to the pandemic, the network of 70 food banks across the greater Toronto area saw about 67,000 clients a month. In March, the number more than quadrupled to 270,000, New Heatherington said at a news conference Tuesday. The charity is also now spending $1.8 million a month on food. Before the onset of COVID-19, it spent $1.5 million a year. Let me be very clear. We're in a crisis. The Daily Bread Food Bank and all food banks all across the country are at a breaking point, Heatherington said. Heatherington added, to the, added that the problem is not one charities can fix. Instead, he called on the provincial government to provide people on social assistance with the same emergency supports that they were provided during the pandemic. The food banks want to see the return of the provincially provided top up to social assistance recipients which was $100 for singles and $200 for families. The top-up was available between March and July 31, 2020, but it was provided at the discretion of caseworkers. The food bank would like to see it return with an automatic benefit to cover the high cost of food people are currently grappling with. CBC News contacted the provincial government for a comment on Heatherington's request, but did not receive a reply prior to publication.
how it got to this point. Daily Bread is also in a precarious financial position. The charity put aside $33 million to get through the pandemic. That money will run out in eight <clears throat> in 18 to 24 months, Heatherington said. While that reserve dries up, he said that they have to raise money, money or food donations. More crucially, he said, the number of clients will need to go down, which is why they're calling on the province to step it in. We've got here because we chose to let we chose to legislate individuals to live in poverty through income supports that are abysmal, Heatherington said. Much of the foods bank clientele are people whose incomes come from social assistance programs like Ontario Works and the Ontario Disability Support Program, he said. Ontario Works provides recipients with $733 a month, and ODSP provides up to $1,288. <clears throat> Heatherington said that both are too low, with the ODSP payment being $900 below the poverty line in Toronto. Sue Ellen Patchison is a volunteer and client of the Daily Bread Food Bank, who relies on government assistance. Before the pandemic, she said that she and four people she lives with had $300 a month left over for food. These days, she said the budget is a bit lower, but doesn't buy half as much. Most days, we eat maybe one meal, occasionally two meals a day. Without the food bank, that would have reduced it even further, and I can't imagine, she said. Food bank visits have also increased among people whose primary source of income is employment, Heatherington said. The percentage of those clients has doubled in the last year, from 60, 66% to 33%. It used to be that if you went to school, got an education, got a job, you would be just fine. This isn't the case anymore, he said. Valerie Talasuk is a professor in the University of Toronto's Department of Nutritional Sciences and the lead investigator of PROOF, <clears throat> a research program looking into policy interventions that can reduce food insecurity in Canada. She said that food inflation is worsening the security of food insecurity people are experiencing, driving more people to food banks. Proves 2021 food security report, the most recent, around 5.8 million Canadians are food insecure across the province. Tarasuk said, about one in four of those people end up at food banks, she said. What I think is happening now with the food price inflation is that we've got more people being pushed to that extreme point. They're surfacing in numbers, like daily breads, she said. You are listening to a reading of articles and features from the Toronto Star on the Niagara Frontier Radio Reading Service. Dog dies after contracting avian flu in Oshawa. Municipalities like Toronto, Mississauga, and Vaughan report confirmed or presumed bird flu cases. A pet dog in Oshawa has died after testing positive for avian flu, the Canadian Food Inspection C CFIA says. In a news release, in a news release issued Tuesday, the agency said the dog was infected and died last week after chewing on a wild goose. The CFA says that the number of documented cases of H5N1, also known as the avian flu, and other species like cats and dogs are low.
and based on current evidence, the risk to the general public remains low. No domestically acquired human cases of avian influenza have been reported in Canada, the news release reads. Cases of inf avian influenza among humans are rare and almost always acquired through direct contact with infected birds or exposure to heavily contaminated environments. To date, there has been no evidence of sustained person-to-person -person spread. Cases reported in Ontario. The news comes as several regions in southern Ontario have report confirmed or presumed cases of the avian flu in recent weeks. Toronto Animal Services confirmed to CBC News Tuesday that there would have been confirmed cases in the greater Toronto area and said it will provide more information on when it becomes available. The city of Mississauga also report confirmed cases in a news release issued Tuesday and warned residents to be cautious. The city said both Mississauga Animal Services and Peel Public Health are monitoring the situation. The avian flu is a contagious viral disease, which is fatal to wild birds and mammals. It can quickly devastate bird and wildlife populations, which can profoundly impact our environment and food chain, said Jay Smith, manager at Mississauga Animal Services, in a statement. We've received multiple calls from residents reporting sick, dying, or dead birds and are working closely with the Peel Public Health and the Canadian Wildlife Health Co Cooperative to assess risk, with many birds migrating to, to Ontario for the spring migration. Our investigation and response will be ongoing. Avian flu affects all birds, especially animals like ducks, swans, geese that tend to stay in flocks and congregate together. Illnesses not typical in humans. Illnesses does not typically pass from birds to humans, the news release reads, though in some cases, pets like cats and dogs can contract it. Despite the low risk of humans contracting the flu, people should still be cautious and avoid going near or handling wild birds or other wildlife, Smith said. Other wildlife is also susceptible to the flu, so please remember to keep your distance. As a reminder, Residents should see their healthcare provider should they become ill with flu-like symptoms within 10 days of handling wild birds or other wildlife. Last month, the Toronto Zoo said it was closing most of its birds enclosures to guests after several cases of avian flu were confirmed in southern Ontario. Similarly, the city of Bonn is warning residents to keep pests away from sick and dying birds with bird flu found in the community. The township of Uxbridge has also warned the public of resumed cases of avian flu geese in the recent few weeks. Toronto police recover portion of $400,000 lost by senior in a Bitcoin scam. Man and wife convinced to invest in an online platform called CryptoC.com. Toronto police investigators say they have recovered a portion of funds lost by a senior who fell victim to a Bitcoin scam that, he, that, cheated, his, that cheated he and his wife out of $400,000. In a news release issued Tuesday, people said that the couple wanted to invest their savings and were allegedly approached online by a scammer who communicated with them over the phone. Police said that the scammer presented as a professional and as professional and knowledgeable in the field, and asked the man to invest in an online platform 
called CryptoSeed.com. The couple was then persuaded to send funds via a legitimate cryptocurrency exchange to a cryptocurrency wallet provided by the scammer, according to investigators. Police say that the man was then provided with credentials for the scam website, where it appeared his investment was growing significantly, where in fact, he had sent his money directly to the person in question. The man eventually asked to withdraw his funds, but was met with multiple excuses and was told to invest more money or pay large fees to have the funds released, police say. Investigators were able to recover a significant portion of lost funds and return them to the couple, though the news release does not state exactly how much money was lost. Police say investigators are still trying to identify the suspects involved, who may be located in another country. Investigators are appealing to anyone who believes they may have a victim of a similar scam to contact police. <clears throat> Steed Vandukav says that scams like this are very common. He's urging, the he's urging the public to be cautious when solicited online for any investments. It is not likely that the funds are recovered via cryptocurrency. That's why this is such a great success story, he said in an interview with CBC Toronto. It's not just crypto. A recent CBC Toronto investigation revealed their fraud reports in Ontario have skyrocketed over the last decade, with only a sliver of annual reports leading to criminal charges. Those scams include anything from Ponzi schemes to romance scams and fraudsters stealing people's homes out, out from under them. Andreas Park, Andreas Park, the professional of finance at the University of Toronto, says crypto users are particularly vulnerable because they can hold their assets in safe and self-custody and, as a result, are free to send their money to anyone they want. With this great freedom, you have great responsibility. And the problem that, if you send it to the wrong person, is just gone, he says. Park says the best way to combat the problem is with education around crypto scams. If it sounds too good to be true, probably is, he said. Vanessa Ayafala, fraud professional, a fraud prevention consultant and instructor at Wilfrid Laurier University, agrees. Cryptocurrency is designed to be anonymous. Its design could be something that is meant to be difficult to trace, he said. If you're not familiar with crypto, if you're not familiar with cryptocurrency, don't touch it. Educate yourself. Speak with someone who's part of a legitimate organization. Park urges people to consider holding their assets with a required investment company like Wealth Simple. If people decide to keep their assets in their own digital wallet, he encourages them to new, to use what is known as a hard wallet, a psychical device that stores a person private keys and allow them to securely access their cryptocurrency. Meanwhile, the Ontario Securities Commission has listed has a list of registered and approved cryptocurrency exchanges that can be found on the following website. These include Bitbuy Technologies Incorporated, Bitfo Incorporated, Coinberry Limited, CoinSquare Capital Markets Limited, Fidelity Clearing Canada, ULC, or Fidelity Digital Assets, Netcoins Incorporated, Newton Crypto Limited, and Virgo CX.
Five charged in connection with illegal activity at Woodbine Casino. A table games dealer was allegedly in collusion with patrons, OPP said. Ontario Provincial Police has charged five people in connection with illegal activity at a Toronto casino. In a news release issued Tuesday, the OPP said investigators were contacted on October 19, 2022, regarding allegations that a table games dealer was in collusion with patrons at Woodback Cedo, which is near Rexdale Boulevard and Highway 27 in Civico. As a result, people say four people, ranging in ages 25 to 33, were arrested and charged with cheating at play, theft over $5,000, and fraud over $5,000. A fifth person, who is over 52 years old, received the same charges in connection with the incident as well as a charge of a criminal breach of trust. The accused have been, have been released from custody and are scheduled to appear before the Ontario Court of Justice and unclosed future dates. Police say the investigation is ongoing. Anyone with information is asked to contact investigators. Royals pick up first win of the season, sending the Blue Jays to a third straight loss. Bichette hits first home run of season for Toronto's 9-5 defeat. Brady Singer pitched five effective innings. MJ Melendez hit a two-run homer, and the Kansas City Royals broke loose at home to beat the Toronto Blue Jays 9-5 on Monday night for their first victory of the season. Nicky Lopez had a two-run triple, and Bobby Witt Jr. delivered a pair of RBI singles as the Royals opened a 7-0 lead in the fourth against Jose Barrios and gave Matt Cordero his first win as a manager. They dumped some champagne on me, sprayed it in my face, and turned out the lights, Cordero said, and his players were thrilled for him. The first one is always the hardest, Lopez said. We showered him for his first win. He deserved it. It's fun playing for him. Singer 1-0 allowed just two hits, doubles by Matt Chapman, with three walks and three strikeouts. He came out firing, Cordero said. It seemed like every pitch he threw was a strike and the velocity was up. He had a really good command of the two-seamer. Singer is 7-0 with a 1.6 ERA in his last 10 starts at the Kovman Stadium dating June 26 last year. It felt good, he said. The fastball had some good life. The velocity was pretty good all game. The slider got me out in a few situations. It had some better bite on it tonight. Toronto, now mired in a free-game losing streak, mounted in a fifth-inning charge loading the bases with a double and a pair of walks. But Singer limited the damage with a double-player grounder that scored one run. Kansas City was shut out twice by Minnesota last weekend while losing its first three games. After entering a major league worst 0.133 batting average, the Royals greeted Barrios 0-1 with, a four, with four first-inning hits, producing three runs and their first lead of the season. Royals take Barreros with eight runs. 
to do it early and let them relax a while and let them relax a little and then add on was a big plus, Quatrero said. The hitters were well prepared, listening to what they were saying about how Barrios was going to pitch and what they were looking for. Barrios went five two-thirds inning in his season debut, allowing eight runs on nine hits and striking out seven. Lopez's two-run triple highlighted and fourth-run fourth at Kansas City expanded its lead to 7-0. We came out swinging, Lopez said. Sometimes you can start off slow. Just come in every day and work your tail off. That's what you do. Melendez capped the scoring in the sixth with a two-run homer. His run of the year and the longest of his career in four, at 443 feet. It was a great feeling. Melendez says, trying to find a pitch I could hit and be on time with it. He crushed that ball, Quachero said. He's got us going with a leave-off double. The home run was more separation. Toronto can score in a heartbeat, so can any separation you can get is huge. Witt also said, Witt also had Kansas City's first stolen base of the year, while five Royals collected their first hits and RBIs. Just getting the first one of the season was a huge thing for us, Melendez said. I think we were pressing a little bit. We got the offense started early and continued throughout the game. Four consecutive singles off Royals relievers led to a pain of seventh running run of seventh inning runs. But the Blue Jays left the bases loaded. Toronto sta- stranded seven in scoring position, going two for eleven in those situations. Bo Pichette Toronto's first homer of the first leading off the ninth. The Blue Jays has gone without a ball in their first three games, their longest draw to begin the season. Toronto needs financial support now, Deputy Mayor says in a letter to Freeland. Financial support can't wait until a new mayor is elected, said the city's Deputy Mayor. The deputy mayor of Toronto continued her calls for financial, for federal financial support to help the city address a nearly $1 billion hole in its 2023 budget. In a letter to Deputy Prime Minister Christina Freeland on Monday, in a letter, Jennifer McLeavy urges Freeland to honor an election promise made by the Liberals to provide the city with 2022 operating funding and work with Revarvans to address the city's 2023 COVID-19 costs. McLeavy says funding support needs to come before the mayoral by-election on June 26. This is an urgent situation that cannot wait three months. The city of Toronto cannot wait and the people of Toronto cannot wait, McLeavy wrote. A spokesperson for Freeland previously told CBC News and all Canadian cities have had a reliable partner in the federal government since the start of the pandemic, tooting over $5 billion in emergency funding that was distributed to municipalities in 2020 and 2021. Ontario received the largest share of that money, which is the federal government, which the federal government says was distributed equally per capita. Still, McLeavy says that funding is needed for the city's transit system and homelessness response. As you know, I have expressed my disappointment in federal budget because it has failed to include promised funding for our COVID-19 costs, McLeavy wrote to Freeland on Monday. In its 2023 budget, the city is facing a nearly $1 billion budget shortfall created by the pandemic. 
On March 29th, Levy said that the city's next mayor would have to slash services without a cash injection from the province and Ottawa. Last week, the city received $235 million from the province to address COVID-19-related issues, related operating pressures in 2022, that it was announced in late 2022 that it does not decrease the $933 million shortfall in the city's 2023 budget. The 2023 federal budget, labeled on March 28th, included no relief for this year's shortfall. A Liberal Government's Province During the 2021 election, a city sent a letter to the Liberals outlining municipal priorities in a federal contest. According to a document shared with CBC News by David Turnbull, Press Secretary for the Office of the Mayor, the first item was a request for continuing COVID-19 operating budget relief. The city said it would need between $702 million and $1.534 billion in 2022 to cover ridership losses in the TTC and pressures on the city shelter system, among other issues. In a letter responding to the city, the Liberals said they would have done whatever it takes to get Canadians through the pandemic and said they could do more. The letter, provided to CBC News and the city, is dated September 9, 2021, and signed by the Prime Minister. Canadians and communities requiring additional support from the federal government can trust that re-elected Liberal government will deliver that support, the letter states. In her letter, in her le- in her letter Monday, McCleavy said that the City Council unanimously voted to urge the government to work with the province to address the city's 2023 COVID-19 costs, including transit and homelessness. As for the province, it says it will be reimbursing COVID-19 expenses in due course, said Victoria Podbielski, spokesperson for Steve Clark, the Provincial Minister of Municipal Appearance and Housing. Freeland responds. Freeland was in Toronto on Monday to speak about the budget at the Toronto Region of Board of Trade, where she was asked about the city shortfall. There is no political entity in Canada that has contributed more robustly to the city of Toronto. I would probably say in its history, than our federal government, Freeland said, according to a transcript of her response provided to CBC News by our press secretary. With the way Canada is structured, the provinces are responsible for the municipality, she said. Freeland said that if the city feels it has shortfalls that can't be met through its tax base, people should bike, walk, or drive to Queen's Park and knock on its doors. We are seeing a strong fiscal position in Toronto. I think that's a good place to be seeking support if that's what the city of Toronto needs, Freeland said. Country moving forward, city in recovery. McCleavy said she understands the federal government is prepared to move on from the the pandemic and has revenues to do so, but that's not the case for Toronto. Our cities and municipalities across Canada are still in recovery mode and, as you know, depend on property taxes and limited revenue too, she wrote. The city's property tax raises have been inadequate for years, experts have previously told CBC News. Property tax revenue has risen by an average of less than 3% annually since 2016. In a statement last week, McCleavy said that the city has raised property taxes every year, including a 5.5% increase this year, the largest increase since amalgamation, McCleavy said. Last week, 
the city council voted to support McCleavy's ongoing advocacy to the federal and provincial governments for a new fiscal framework and revenue tools for the city. You are listening to a reading of articles and features from the Toronto Star on the Niagara Frontier Radio Reading Service. Solicitor General says that Ontario's policing law should be enacted as soon as possible. Law would allow chief to suspend officer without pay if they're charged with a serious offence. Ontario Solicitor General says that he's trying to complete consultations on a four-year-old policing law that hasn't been enacted as soon as possible, so it can be put into force. Michael Kersner was asked in a question period Monday about the police services overhaul that has been sitting on the books since 2019 in light of news reports about the Ontario Provincial Police Officer suspended three years without pay. CBC reported Saturday that Leeds County OPP Constable Jason Redmond has been on paid leave since 2015, stemming from a drug and trafficking investigation. Redmond was convinced of drug trafficking in 2018, but received only one year of probation and no jail time. Then, on February 16th, Redmond was found guilty of sexual assault that took place in December 2017. The Brockville Recorder and Times was first to report this late decision. According to a court transcript on tape by CBC News, the judge on the trial heard Crown witness testimony saying Redmond had raped the victim because he was proving a point that she had a drinking program, drinking problem, and he made a video to show anybody could rape her. Redmond has collected his OPP salary through these events since his original charge in 2015. His name was included in the 2021 Ontario Sunshine List, which is published annually by the province and publicly discloses the name of all public sector employees who earned $100,000 or more. According to the list, Redmond mailed $121,047.96 that year. Kirzner said no one should be convicted of disturbing crimes should be receiving a taxpayer-funded salary, and that's why his government brought in the Community Safe Safety and Policing Act, which allows a police chief to suspend an officer without pay if they're charged with a serious offense. But in the law, despite being passed in 2019, is not yet enforced because the government has not drawn up all of the associated regulations, said Kersner, and Kersner said that he has directed the deputy minister to complete decisions about those regulations with police services and unions as soon as possible. Currently, suspended officers have to be paid, even when convicted of an offense, unless they're sentenced to prison. Maple Leafs won't wear themed jerseys for a team's Pride Night Tuesday. Rainbow stick tape available for pre-game skate. Matt Murray head injury not serious. The Toronto Maple Leafs won't wear themed warm-up jerseys for the team's annual Pride Night celebration Tuesday. The organization has held Pride Nights in support of the LGBTQ community since 2017, but never sported special warm-up jerseys. The Leafs say that the rainbow stick tape will be available to players during the pre-game state 
and several have other other events planned throughout the night. Toronto players and head coach Sheldon Keefe donned rainbow-themed t-shirts during Tuesday morning media availability before facing the Columbus Blue Jackets. A small group of NHLers have decided have declined to wear a prime warm jersey this season, including Philadelphia Flyers defenseman Ivan Perovov, San Jose Sharks goalie James Reimer, Eric and Mark Stahl of Florida Panthers, and Buffalo Sabres Blue Niner Lila L. Leafs defenseman Morgan Riley has marched in Toronto's Pride Parade along with general manager Kyle Dubas and team president Brendan Shanahan in the past. I believe that actions speak louder than words, Riley said Tuesday, and especially speak louder than attire. The Leafs will have Pride decals on their helmets, but Russian goaltender Lila S. isn't expected to wear one on the back of his mask. Maple Leafs goalie Matt Murray is listed day-to-day with a head injury, Keefe said Tuesday. Murray left Sunday's loss to the Red Wings after appearing to hit his head on the ice when Detroit found Lucas Raymond slipped and fell into the back of Netminder's legs, causing Murray to fall backwards. The 28-year-old Murray has struggled to stay healthy in his first season since being acquired from the Ottawa Senators. It would be difficult to put a timeline on before we give him more time to settle. Keefe said Tuesday morning of Murray's status. He's got a head injury. He's got some other stuff as well. Murray, who missed significant time earlier in the schedule with growing and ankle injuries, is 14-8-2 with one shutout, 0.093 save percentage, and 3.01 goals against average in 26 appearances this season. Prior to deporting Sunday's game against Detroit, he's allowed four goals against and seven in his last eight appearances. With Murray out, the Leafs recalled Jason Wolf from the American Hockey League's Toronto Marlies on an emergency basis. The 21-year-old rookie has played four games with the Leafs this season, going 3-1-0 with a .934 save percentage and a 2.03 GAA. Expected to make the ninth NHL start of his career Tuesday against Columbus, Wolf is 6-4-1 with a .927 per save percentage and a 2.37 GAA this season with the Marlies. He's been great, Riley said. He has been playing really good hockey. He's a guy who loves coming to the rink. He works hard. He's played outstanding. The Leafs also loaned forward Redeem Sahorna, who played his first two games with the team over the weekend, back to the AHL. Toronto is locked into a first-round playoff rematch with the Tampa Bay Lightning. Toronto fell to its Atlantic Division rival last spring in seven games and hasn't advanced in the postseason since 2004. Toronto moms shocked after finding disrespectful toy resembling an Inuk inside Kinder Egg. Ferrero Rocher, which owns Brand, apologizes for offense but won't commit to taking toys off shelves. A Toronto mother is outraged finding a toy that resembles an inuk inside an igloo in her daughter's Kinder Surprise egg. 
Teresa Miller bought her daughter a Kinder Surprise egg as a treat while out grocery shopping around early February. Once her daughter devoured the chocolate and unveiled the toy, Miller was shocked. It's just disrespectful and unnecessary, she says. I don't think there's any part of this that should be remotely close to something being appropriate for a child or toy that should be manufactured at all. Suited in an orange parka, the figurine sits inside an igloo waiting to be launched on what looks like a curling target. Miller, who is not indigenous, said she used the opportunity as a teaching moment. We immediately had a conversation about how it's not appropriate. We don't use people's culture as toys, she said. I think it's important that more than it, that more indigenous people start standing up for things that have happened that are not ideal, and it shouldn't always be on their shoulders to have to defend everything. Company doesn't commit to taking toys off shelves. Miller said when she reached out to Ferrer Rocher, the company that makes the egg, but wasn't happy with their response. They stated that the toy was not supposed to depict any specific culture except there's only one culture, as far as I'm aware, that make igloos. So that's a bit of a brush-off. That's when Miller reached out to CBC Toronto about the issue. When CBC Toronto reached out to Ferrer Rocher for the comment, a company spokesperson said, We're sorry that this toy caused offense. It's part of a general toy collection that is available globally, and is not designed to portray any specific culture. The statement went on to say that the company will take feedback into account and the design of future toys. As for whether it would remove the toys from the storage shelves, the company didn't provide an answer. Toy missed the mark, says Advocate. Mukpalu Ipali, the CEO of Urban Inuit Identity Project, said she was too offended by the toy upon hearing it. We're living and breathing people. We're involved in modern times, and we're not all living in igloos. And sometimes, people can get caught up in seeing imagery like this, and starting to believe that the Inuit are prehistoric. The Urban Inuit Identity Project is an organization that aims to educate different sectors like healthcare and social services about the cultural uniqueness of urban Inuit people and advocate for culturally safe services. While the chocolate company claims that the toy wasn't supposed to depict any one culture, I believe degrees. It's absolutely an Inuit toy. They're Inuk in an igloo. There's no doubt of that. She says, it's absolutely clear that the Inuit were not included in the design process of this toy. CBC Toronto asked the company whether the Inuit were involved in the creation of the toy. The company did not respond to that question. Ipeely said that the company has had an opportunity to design a toy that would allow children to learn about Inuit in Canada. We are still here and are not toys, and we're not here for the amusement of other people, she said. For her part, Miller says she wishes that the company would remove the toy from shelves. She's not sure she'll purchase a Kinder Egg again, and she feels consultation is needed. If you think making toys with a different cultural feel to them is something that you think is a business opportunity, then contact those cultures yourself and see what is appropriate. You are listening to a reading of articles and features from the Toronto Star on the Niagara Frontier Radio Reading Service. Toronto Police HQ has a licensed lounge. The senior cop was there before the drunk driving crash. Toronto Police Service Superintendent entered a lounge with a licensed, fully stocked bar in police headquarters 
About three hours before he crashed his service-issued SUV into another vehicle in Pickering, Ontario, and was charged with impaired driving in January 2022, CBC News has learned. Superintendent Riaz Hussein, who headed the service disciplinary tribunal, pleaded guilty in October to driving with blood alcohol level over 80 mg pour 100 milliliters of blood in connection with the crash that has appeared before Toronto Police Disciplinary Tribunal on related police service act charges on Monday. Hussein pleaded guilty to one count of discreditable contact. As a penalty, he received a demotion and rank from superintendent to inspector for 12 months, effective today. It is unclear how long Hussein was the executive director lounge or whether or not he drank in the room. But his presence there leading up to the crash of the Highway 401 has police stakeholders questioning the appropriateness of a bar within a public institution like police headquarters and potential liability issues. That incident has made me feel very concerned, said Alok Mukherjee, chair of Toronto Public Services Board from 2005 to 2015, that raises questions about supervision and control of the room but raises a bigger question. Whatever may have been the culture 50 years ago, even 25 years ago, of having fully stocked bars and premises, whether it's acceptable today? CBC News obtained a security pass scan log for the lounge, which is accessible only to senior officers through a Freedom of Inf- Information request. On January 13, 2022, the records show that Hussein's pass san- scanned into the lounge at 4.31 p.m., Passes aren't needed to exit the lounge. By 7.39 p.m. that evening, Hussein already crashed into a delivery truck in a Toronto suburb and has been assessed by paramedics when an OPP officer demanded a roadside breath test that Hussein failed, according to the notice of hearing in Hussein's disciplinary proceeding. The crash happened in the eastbound lanes of Highway 401, just west of Liverpool Road in Pickering roughly 38 kilometers from police headquarters. Police previously said Huisen returned to duty in February 2022 and was placed on administrative duties. CBC News contacted Huisen in his lawyer for commitment, but didn't receive a response. But on Monday, Huisen's lawyer, Peter Brody, told that the hearing of his client is remorseful for what took place, while Brody said Huisen thought he was under the limit to drive at the time. His client recognizes his mistake and will not make the mistake again. There will no mention. There is no mention of where Hussein was driving before he drove, or the existence of a licensed lounge for senior officers. At Monday's hearing, I'm absolutely astounded that they've got a bar in the government building," said John Sewell, coordinator of Toronto Police Accountability Coalition. "This is a public service. I'm not aware of any other public service that has a bar in it, and yet." The police do. Police say liquor license used infrequently. Toronto police denied a CBC News request for an interview with Chief Mayon D about a licensed bar and Hussein's presence in the lounge before his impaired driving crash. Instead, in an email statement, a spokesperson said that the service can't comment on matters that are currently before the disciplinary tribunal. But the spokesperson added that the lounge hasn't maintained a liquid license for many years and is subject to the Ontario Liquid License Act, which requires alcoholic beverages to be served by a smart serve certified person.
A license is used infrequently and largely for formal functions, including most retirements or when hosting dignitaries, says Stephanie Sayer. The space itself is mostly used for meetings or a quiet place to work. In its own statement, the Toronto Police Services Board said it was not involved in the establishment of the Executive Officer's Lounge and isn't involved in administering it in any capacity. The board makes clear that impaired driving, whether by service members or by members of the public, regardless of the manner and means of impairment, and whether such impairment may have, may have taken place, is, absolute, is absolutely prohibited, contrary to law and contrary to the duties and obligations of a police officer, said Anne Morgan, interim chair. The executive officer's lounge was first issued a liquor license at the 40 College Street headquarters in 1989, according to the Alcohol and Gaming Commission of Ontario, AGCO. A beautiful community. Universities across Canada open lounges for Black students. Toronto Metropolitan University opened its last month, open space last month for Black students. Spaces designated for students from marginalized backgrounds are spreading across Canadian universities, as officials say that is necessary and overdue response to decades of racism on campus. The Toronto Metropolitan University officially opened a space last month for students who identify as Black. Cheryl Thomas, an associate professor at the university, said that the need for such lounges became increasingly clear following the death of George Floyd, whose 2022 killing by what Minneapolis Police Department officer sparked protests worldwide. Something did shift in 2020 institutionally when the world witnessed the humanity that the George Floyd in that George Floyd video. Thompson said about the black man who was seen in a video to use his last few breaths telling an officer kneeling on his neck, I can't breathe. The demands black students have been making for decades have finally been heard. Ebony Morgan, a spokesperson for TMU's lounge said that the decision to create room stemmed from a recommendation in 2020 anti-Black racism campus climate review report that surveyed Black members in their school community. They found that they continue to face systematic racism by institutions and their peers. The lounge is equipped with a kitchen, other facilities, and a mural painted by Black student artists and can fit up to 25 students at a time. It's a beautiful community to watch unfold, Morgan said. It's been loud, exciting, and students are constantly in the space. The lounge allows students to let guard down. Thompson said that in the lounge, you can let your guard down and have conversations about things you're going through, like support groups for people who have suffered trauma. One of the reasons why young people struggle with their mental health is because they think that they're the only ones going through what they're going through, she said. Having these spaces make you more confident to say, oh, I'm not alone. Across the city, York University, Canada's second largest, launched a lounge for Black students in January. The University of Winnipeg's BIPOC lounge for students, who are Black, Indigenous, and people of color, opened in 2018. The University of British Columbia, UBC, launched a space for Black male students last year, said Ansley Carey. A university spokesperson, Kerry said that UBC's Black Mill Initiative is believed to be the first of its kind program at a Canadian university 
and was designed to provide a confidential space on campus for members to connect to other Black male students where they can share their living experiences. She said that the pilot program had been well received. We recognize that there is underrepresentation of the Black population at UBC, and that Black community members may feel isolated or face charges not experienced by their non-Black peers, Carey said. That's why UBC is taking steps to help foster a sense of belonging for Black community members. Morgan added, TMU has received some emails blasting Sloan's as a segregationist. Thompson said that she has not seen those emails but dismissed the charge as foolishness, arguing such accusations could have only been written by people who had no knowledge of what a system of segregation is. Thompson said that the type of racism Black people experience is different than other marginalized groups. Anti-Black racism is not dependent on every being a Canadian. It has nothing to do with your citizenship. Safe spaces is crucial to fostering students' development. One critic of the lounge is Adesi Mabalja, a student of the York Federation of Students. She has accused Sewell's administrators of using the space to mend reputations tarred of underfunding Black student groups. This is a trend of performative justice, performative activism by institutions across Canada, she said. M said, based on her discussions with other Black student associations in the Toronto area, she believed universities were creating spaces for Black students, but leaving Black students' group underfunded to fend for themselves. If you're actually going to support Black students, do it in a way that genuinely, and in a way that desires to actually uplift and amplify the community. Thompson said the criticism was healthy. Universities, instead of dismissing that, need to really ask themselves, oh, where are they coming from? Maybe we do need to have more open lines of communication. You've been listening to a reading and articles and features from the April 10th issue of the Toronto Star. Your reader has been Victoria. Thank you for listening and hope you had a great Easter weekend.